Hello and welcome to Wizard Studies. I'm Katie. And I'm Audrey. And today we are going to be talking about everybody's least favorite or your favorite seer. I think she's the only <laughs> seer we like meet in the series. So she's probably either your favorite or least favorite. Well, do the centaurs count as seers? I don't know. I don't know if they're really seers. I feel like they're more like diviners. Mm, no, okay. they read the stars. Are you going to tell people who it is? Oh, it's Trelawney. <laughs> Did I not say that? <laughs> I don't think so. You might have, though, and I just blocked it out. Uh, yeah, no, we're talking about Trelawney today. Professor Sybil Trelawney. Um, so some of the info from this, kind of like the supplementary information... Is coming from one of the ebooks in that trilogy of ebooks that we've been talking about. It's short stories from Hogwarts of heroism, hardship, and dangerous hobbies. And I believe Sybil falls in the dangerous hobbies category. Yeah, I think so. There also just wasn't as much about her. Yeah, um, there wasn't that much about her. Than a lot of the other characters. Yeah. So, just jumping right in with her fact file. Her name is Sybil Patricia Trelawney. And Sybil with one L. So she's her name is spelled with two L's. Sybil with two L's. But Sybil with one L was a priestess in ancient Roman mythology. And a Sybil, again with one L, is a woman who could look into the future. And it's just kind of refers to any female prophet. The name is from the Latin Sibylla, which means seer. And in the ebook, JKR says that she chose to spell it with two L's because she did not feel that Trelawney was quite qualified enough to be Sybil with one L. Yeah, also the difference in spelling for Trelawney, the it's S-Y, but mm-hmm. the Sybil with one L is S-I-B-Y-L. So like the Y and I switch places. Yeah, I was noticing that as I was... As I was reading my notes and I was like, did I? Like, is this a typo? But (laughs) you're right. And then Sybil, um, S-Y-B-I-L, so kind of another version, could also originate from the Sibylline books, which were a Roman collection of oracular occurrences. (laughs) And then Patricia, pretty basic middle name. It's Latin for noblewoman. I feel like that just kind of got thrown in there. (laughs) Yeah. I also read somewhere that in some form of, like, media or information, her middle name was incorrectly, um, like, a a different name was, had her as her middle name. Oh, interesting. See if I can go find that again. Also, speaking of, like, mistakes, um, I forgot to mention with her first name, in Order of the Phoenix, that it is misspelled. I don't know if it's just once or a couple times or like every time as Sybil with just one L. So fun little fact. I'm sure it's been fixed in later editions. Did you find anything about Patricia yet? Or middle name yet? No. Okay. I'll get back to you if I find it. Okay. So then Trelawney is derived from a famous cry of defiance 
from the southwest of England, which is where JKR grew up, and it's shouted at football matches that kind of like as a chant as a chant. Soccer, if you are an American listening to us, <laughs> um, and so the the chant goes, "And shall Trelawney live? And shall Trelawney die? Here's ten thousand Cornishmen who ask the reason why." And this is a line from the Song of the Western Men, which was written written in 1833 by the poet and parson Robert Stevens Hawker, and it's the unofficial Cornish national anthem. So the this um, line or this song kind of refers to a march to London in 1688 that was a protest to the incarceration of. Um, at the Tower of London of Jonathan Trelawney, Bishop of Bristol. And of course we can read this as kind of a reference to how Trelawney, Sybil Trelawney, predicts the death of one of her students every year. And it's also kind of of note that Bishop Trelawney was released and went on to live for another 33 years, just as Professor Trelawney's famous death predictions usually do not come true. <laughs> And the name Trelawney comes from the Cornish phrase Trelono, homestead of groves, or Trelano, farm and clearing. And JKR has just said that she loves Cornish surnames and she hadn't used one up until this point. So kind of that's where the choice of the name Trelawney came from. It also is an old name and that kind of references how Sybil Trelawney has this over-reliance on her ancestry and people, her, things that her ancestors did that might have been good um, that she doesn't necessarily live up to, which we'll talk about a bit later. Yeah, so I didn't find anything about the middle name, but I swear I read that somewhere, so... I don't know. I cannot find that again. Um, we do know that her birthday <laughs> is March 9th. We do not know what year she was born, but we do know that it was before 1963. What, what was the source on that? Like, why do we know that? Is it to do with McGonagall, me? Or? No, it's because she was hired in oh, okay. 1980, so she had to be at least 17. Yeah, okay, that makes more sense. Um, so, yeah, we but do know that she... much older, probably. Yeah, yeah, I would assume that. Because even in um, in the Trelawney section of the short book, in the, like, J.K. Thought section, she does posit, like, what Trelawney would have been doing before being hired at Hogwarts. So that does imply that, like, there was time in between her attending Hogwarts and her coming back to teach at Hogwarts. Yeah, and that kind of segues us into her family members. So we do know that she did, she was married um, before coming to Hogwarts, but it was a very brief marriage. Um, it ended in un unforeseen rupture when she refused to adopt the surname Higglebottom. And <laughs> they, we of course, had no. a queen <laughs> that will not change her last name to a, a janky ass last name. Like, <laughs> Bottom. Also, like, clearly was not a worthy man if he could not be with a woman that wouldn't take his last name. Yeah, that's but. some bullshit. <laughs> and so they had no children together. She has no children. She does, she's half-blood, so she is a muggle mother and a wizard father. 
which I think I always think um, couples between like one muggle and one magical person are really interesting so I would love to know more about her upbringing in her childhood we don't get that information in the ebook so we'll probably never get it but definitely an unusual upbringing I would guess yeah and then her final family member which I believe Katie's going to talk about more later is Cassandra Trelawney who I'll just say for now is her great great grandmother so getting at that ancestry we were talking about Yeah, so we also do know about her wand, and I think that the only reason we know about this is because there is a section on her in the short stories. Um, She seems like a weird character to know the, like, wand, wooden wand core, because we don't know so many of them, but that's why we know it. I also, I was thinking about this when I was, like, making up these notes, and I just don't think we ever even, like, really see her use her wand. I know. And so I was looking up stuff about Trelawney on the internet, just, like, seeing if there were any interesting, like, theories kind of surrounding her, um, just in my research. And one of the things that came up was, like, is Trelawney a squib? And I was like, oh my god, is she? I, we've, like, I was like, does she even do magic? And then obviously she did, because she attended Hogwarts as a student. But right. we just never, I don't think we ever see her with her wand even let alone like not doing magic i think yeah so the one thing i thought of is in the battle of hogwarts harry sees her throwing crystal balls and it's not said that that is like with Mm -hmm. magic or with i always imagined like she was throwing them with her hands but i thought oh maybe like she was kind of hurling them with her wand like levitating yeah yeah maybe it's just weird because i i like believed it for a second i was like oh my god is she squib does she is she does he even have like magical parentage that'd be wild right um but anyways her wand is hazel wood with a unicorn hair i almost said unicorn horn but it's not it's a unicorn hair core um it's nine and a half inches which it's a pretty short wand um and it's very flexible so just the excerpt about hazelwood hold on let me pull up my spreadsheet to see if we have i put it in we don't okay never mind then um i see i was gonna see if we have any other characters with hazelwood wand the spreadsheet isn't extensive at the moment so there might be but we don't have any in it at the moment so about hazelwood a sensitive wand hazel often reflects its owner's emotional state and works best for a master who understands and can manage their own feelings others should be very careful handling a hazel wand if its owner has recently lost their temper or suffered serious disappointment because the wand will absorb such energy energy and discharge it unpredictably the positive aspect of a hazel wand more than makes up for such minor discomforts however for it is capable of outstanding magic in the hands of the skillful and is so devoted to its owner that it often wilts which is to say it expels all of its magic and refuses to perform often necessitating the extraction of the core and its insertion into another casting if the wand is still required these sentences are so long (laughs) at the end of its master's life if the core is unicorn hair however there is no hope the wand will almost certainly have quote died hazel wands also have the unique ability to detect water underground and will emit silvery tear-shaped puffs of smoke if passing over concealed springs and wells um 
I don't know how much I like this for Trelawney. I really don't think she has a very good handle over her emotional state and can manage her own feelings very well. I do like that it is a wand that is like based off emotion because I feel like she is a more emotionally fraught character. Um, I really like the thing about the water that is so odd, it's but so it's random. so cool. Yeah, and I really like the idea that the wand dies. Um, after its owner dies and kind of expels all of its magic especially for unicorn hair which is what Trelawney has and then again we've just gone over the unicorn hair thing so many times and it applies to like every character because there's only three so the descriptions are so broad I don't even think we're gonna talk about unicorn hair for this but hazel is a very interesting wood so I guess like in that sense it's a very interesting wood for a very interesting character yeah, it's kind of, it feels kind of niche. Mm-hmm. Um, the one thing I do like about her wand is that it's said to be very flexible, which I think, the, like, rigidity of wands is always kind of weird. Um, I don't, like, fully understand it, but I, yeah. I sense, like, the flexible, like, she has a very open mind, obviously, like, being a seer, all that dreamy stuff, so I think that's kind of cool. Um, seeing her in contrast to someone who I think like bellatrix is like unyielding flexibility um, yeah so not at all flexible so i think that kind of dichotomy which i think my wand is supposed to be unyielding which i don't know how i feel about that <laughs> i well i would guess that mcgonagall's is pretty rigid as well i think it yeah character. i think it is Speaking yeah i think it's just being stubborn dichotomy of trelawney and mcgonagall we'll get back to that later yes and then her hogwarts house is or was Ravenclaw um she was a Ravenclaw student when she was at Hogwarts I guess this makes sense to me I think definitely I can see a lot of Ravenclaw students would be rolling their eyes at her like I know Hermione's not a Ravenclaw but like the Hermione type Ravenclaw which is also what I am uh, very like fact-based logic based sees everything she does as kind of total bullshit but then you think of someone like Luna, who I'm not, I mean, Luna definitely believes a lot of things that a lot of people don't believe. And I think that's kind of the quirkiness, the mysterious, but also just like based in curiosity and um, wanting knowledge. I think she does like being a seer, craving knowledge makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I do think that with her kind of playing up her seer ability I think kind of plays into that like Ravenclaw trait of I feel like they're they look for like prestige a lot of the times like they look Mm. for success and I feel like that could play into Trelawney's like want and need for success and like notoriety yeah gaining not really she doesn't have much respect but some respect and like like a prestige yeah standing yeah Um, So for her special abilities, we have Seer, though the gift is unpredictable and unconscious. So I'm going to talk a lot about her kind of skill as a Seer later. Um, It's definitely interesting to think about and to talk about, so stay tuned for that. (laughs) (laughs) And then for hobbies, we have practicing making doom-laden prophecies in front of the mirror and Sherry. I really like that it's not even just like drinking sherry or making yeah. sherry. Her hobby is just sherry. I was reading this ebook and it 
like sherry was the last word on the page and so i like clicked to the next page expecting to see like drink sherry drinking or something like that and it was just there's nothing else like it just started the next paragraph i was like all right cool (laughs) but i really like the the idea that she like stands in front of the mirror and like practices her like prophecy voice yeah even though when she actually does it it's like very convincing and she's totally unconscious of it like has no idea what's going on yeah yeah that's super funny to think about um so for her first mention i'm pretty sure this is the first mention of her um I don't think she's mentioned in the first two books, and I did not find a mention of her earlier in Prisoner of Azkaban, but this is one that I'm definitely less sure about than some of the other characters, so if she was mentioned before, I apologize, and let me know, but I don't think she was. So her name first gets dropped in the Talons and Tea Leaves chapter of Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban on page 101 of the first edition hardback release. Um, it just says, uh, there was no doors off this landing, but Ron nudged Harry and pointed at the ceiling where there was a circular trap door with a brass plaque on it. Sybil Trelawney, divination teacher, Harry read. How are we supposed to get up there? And then on the next page is when they first meet Trelawney. So I'm going to read her like description. So this is page 102. A voice came suddenly out of the shadows, a soft, misty sort of voice. Welcome, it said. How nice to see you in the physical world at last. Harry's immediate impression was of a large, glittering insect. Professor Trelawney moved into the firelight, and they saw that she was very thin. Her large glasses magnified her eyes to several times their natural size, and she was draped in in a gauzy spangled shawl. Innumerable chains and beads hung around her spindly neck, and her arms and hands were encrusted with bangles and rings. Sit, my children. Sit. So... I think that's a great first mention of Trelawney. I really like the description of her. I think Emma Thompson plays her really well. Mm-hmm. I think it's one of, like, the best, like, straight adaptations. Because um, she she is kind of this one-dimensional character, at least the times that we see her. Like, taking her character as a whole is a little bit more dynamic and a little bit more to dig into. But as a person, it, like, reading the story, just meeting her, she is a pretty, like one-dimensional character so it's really easy to adapt and they did a great job I think yeah I was I was thinking exactly of Emma Thompson while you were reading that description of her and I think the great thing about Emma Thompson in the movies is that she is like she's a very famous actress she's in a ton of other things but she is so unrecognizable she looks nothing like Emma Thompson it's wild it's like even it's so she's so unrecognizable that like when I saw her and other things it took me a long time to like put together like seeing her in love actually it takes you a while to be like like who how do I know her like what is this and then the first time you make that connection it's just like kind of crazy because you realize how transformed she is yeah, also, I think that we've talked about this on the podcast before, but obviously there's, like, the drama with her, Kenneth Branagh, and Helena Bonham Carter. Um, she was married to Kenneth Branagh, and then he cheated on her with Helena Bonham Carter. Ironically, they're all in the Harry Potter universe. But I also, I did learn something else about that story. So apparently Kenneth Branagh was offered to direct 
Cruise from Azkaban before they offered it to Alfonso Cuaron, which would have been really awkward, I think, if they still would have ended up casting Emma Thompson. Because I think they were divorced by this point. Because I think this yeah. all happened, like, pretty pre-Hog... Like, pre-Harry Potter stuff. So, I thought that was funny. I didn't know that. Yeah, I think it happened to, like, a different... Um, ser- or d- a different movie. Yeah, like, I... So, Kenneth Branagh and Helena Bottom Carter met on, like, Mary Shelley movie. Yeah. Like, about, like, Dr. Frankenstein, I think. And, like, Frankenstein's monster. Um... So, yeah, that was interesting. But Kenneth Branagh is a director, so, like, he would have been, like, I don't know. The only movies I've seen that he's directed, I think, are the Thor movies, unless he also directed Murder on the Orient Express, which I don't know. Yeah, that's, I love the drama, love the movie set yeah, drama. Yeah, that's, like, one of my favorite fun facts, like, did you know? Yeah, <laughs> we've definitely brought it up before. Yeah, but the fact that Kenneth Branagh was offered to direct Prisoner of Azkaban, I did not know. I also read that on the wiki, on yeah. uh, Sybil Trelawney's wiki today. Okay, also he did direct The Murder on the Orient Express, which I love that movie, so. I don't love the Thor movie that he directed, but I do really <laughs> like The Murder on the Orient Express. Huh. Alright, so now moving on to Trelawney's Myers-Briggs. Um, hers, I feel like it was pretty clear because she has such a distinct, even though she is kind of one-dimensional, she has such a distinct aura about her, really no one like her. Um, so she is an INFP, which is the mediator, and this is the same personality type as Luna. Um, I remember thinking that this fit Luna really well. I think we don't know nearly as much about Trelawney, so I don't think it fits Trelawney nearly as well, but I think out of the 16 and out of what we know, it definitely is the right choice. So mediator personalities are true idealists, always looking for the hint of good in even the worst of people and events, searching for the ways to make things better. While they may be perceived as calm, reserved, or even shy, mediators have an inner flame and passion that can truly shine. Comprising just 4% of the population, the risk of feeling misunderstood is unfortunately high for the mediator personality type. But when they find like-minded people to spend their time with, the harmony they feel will be a fountain of joy and inspiration. So... I think reserved and shy does make sense. We do know that she kind of keeps to herself among the staff, um, but she does have this sort of inner flame, inner passion for divination, and even though everyone else or many other people see it as bullshit, like, I think she truly does believe in, like, the subject that she teaches and the things that she practices. And then the big thing from this blurb is misunderstood. This is kind of like her curse well I think Kitty will talk about it later with the her ancestors but the curse um to never be believed people constantly underestimate her yet she plays a very important role um and has huge prophecies for both of the wars and kind of prophecies that shape the whole series obviously the first prophecy is like defines the series so I do think the, like, misunderstood part of her personality just, like, that's huge. Yeah. 
Being a part of the diplomat role group, mediators are guided by their principles rather than by logic, excitement, or practicality. When deciding how to move forward, they will look to honor, beauty, morality, and virtue. Mediators are led by the purity of their intent, not rewards and punishments. People who share the mediator personality type are proud of this quality and rightly so, but not everyone understands the drive behind these feelings and it can lead to isolation. So in line with this, she's certainly not logical or practical. I mean, I think (laughs) divination falls outside of all logic. And I think this is why we see her butt head so strongly with Hermione and McGonagall, who are two of the characters who have like that most grounded sense of logic and practicality. And she's (laughs) she's not very exciting either, (laughs) seeing not being driven by excitement. I mean, this might be why Harry dislikes her class so much. I think his main, like, problem with her class is that he's just so bored, and also she's ridiculous, but he, like, falls asleep in her class. Um, it's really has trouble um, holding his attention. And she also is never really rewarded or acknowledged for her, I, I want to say, like, contributions to the wars, even though it's not necessarily, like, a good contribution. But no one really, like, knows the significance that she has. So I think this goes with, like, while maybe she wants that, like, notoriety, she never gets it. Um, especially because she doesn't even know she's making these predictions. Yeah. And then, again, um, leading to isolation, she definitely, um, people don't get her and that drives her to, like, turn inward and kind of just isolate herself. At their best, these qualities enable mediators to communicate deeply with others, easily speaking in metaphors and parables, and understanding the and creating symbols to share their ideas. Fantasy worlds in particular fascinate mediators more than any other personality type. So, I mean, speaking in metaphors and parables, like, that's basically what giving a prophecy is. <laughs> and... Fantasy worlds, obviously, like, Harry Potter is a fantasy world (laughs) on its own, but I think, like, she lives in kind of her own fantasy within the wizarding world, the magical world, um, with divination, because so many people, again, I've said this a million times, but see it as bullshit. Unlike their extroverted cousins, mediators will focus their attention on just a few people, a single worthy cause. Mm -hmm. Spread too thinly, they'll run out of energy and even become dejected and overwhelmed by all the bad in the world that they can't fix. So um, this kind of ties into, I think, how she fosters these close student-teacher relationships with Lavender and Parvati, um, and that's really it. No one else, none of the other students we see connect with her. But with those two girls, she does seem to have a close relationship with. Um, We don't really know the extent, but I think she isn't, like, capable of doing that for multiple students. And also, I don't think multiple students would really want a relationship with her. (laughs) (laughs) And then, kind of this single cause, I find it interesting that both of her, like, true prophecies, quote-unquote... Um, are about the same topic and focus on Voldemort and Harry and obviously that's kind of like the main thing going on in the world but it's interesting that she's kind of had two real um, 
prophecies, and they both are about Voldemort. If they are not careful, mediators can lose themselves in their quest for good and neglect the day-to-day upkeep that life demands. Mediators often drift into deep thought, enjoying contemplating the hypothetical and philosophical more than any other personality type. Left unchecked, mediators may start to lose touch, withdrawing into hermit mode, and it can take a great deal of energy from their friends or partners to bring them back to the real world. Again, she spends much of her time alone in the North Tower, drinking sherry, deep in thought. Um, She also seems to struggle with kind of mental health and uh, depression and withdrawing into herself, particularly when Umbridge fires her. So I think she definitely is sensitive and um, can easily, like, lose herself and stop taking care of herself and we don't really see her have anyone in the series to take care of her so she spirals downward very quickly luckily like flowers in spring mediators affection creativity altruism and idealism will always come back rewarding them and those they love perhaps not with logic and utility but with a worldview that inspires compassion kindness and beauty wherever they go So this is kind of like a nice look on her, um, how she kind of revives herself in a way to fight back in the Battle of Hogwarts, um, throwing the crystal balls, and then protecting those that are dear to her. The one, Lavender is like one of the people that we see have the most connection with her, and that's who she's like protecting when she's hurling those crystal balls at (laughs) Fenrir Greyback. But was she successful in... The world may never know. The world we will never know. <laughs> so finally, her strengths and weaknesses. First strengths, we have idealistic, seek and value harmony, open-minded and flexible, very creative, passionate and energetic, and dedicated and hardworking. Probably all of those, but dedicated and hardworking. I mean, maybe she's dedicated to her craft, yeah. but she's not very good at it. <laughs> Uh. and then for weaknesses we have too idealistic too altruistic which is coming up again we talked about that i think last episode um impractical dislike dealing with data take things personally and difficult to get to know wow (laughs) what do you feel like that's harsh well, those are good. I those those strengths and weaknesses might be some of like the most on point, like all of them. You know, because normally there's like a yeah. couple that don't really work, but like almost all of those weaknesses and almost all of those strengths like work with her. Right? Yeah, I feel like the strengths and the strengths and weakness, weaknesses are usually like pretty vague, yeah. and like the personality type can fit well, but the strengths and weaknesses don't. But this time, like. I do feel like these weaknesses um, and strengths fit really well. I like the dislike dealing with data one just because I feel like that's, like, what divination is. (laughs) Yeah. I like that. Um, And I'm going to talk about a little bit later her um, comparison to Luna. So that was also nice that they had the same personality type because that works out super well. Um, so speaking of her seeing capabilities, I'm going to go through first a little bit about her family history and where she got her seerness from, um, seeing ability from, and then about kind of the predictions that she's made 
quote-unquote predictions because I'll talk about the <laughs> the viability of some of these. So first, like we mentioned, she's related to Cassandra Trelawney, who is her great-great-grandmother. And Cassandra Trelawney was a very, like, well-known seer, and this is where she got her ability from. But I think even Dumbledore says, like, through the generations, it's become quite diluted. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So she definitely does not live up to, like, the Cassandra Trelawney name, and she uses that a lot, like we mentioned earlier, to get notoriety, that kind of thing. Um, she, like, basically tried to use it to get a job at Hogwarts. Like, before she made that prophecy, that was, like, the only thing going for her, basically. So, Cassandra is a character in Greek mythology. She was a princess of Troy, and her beauty caused Apollo to grant her the gift of prophecy. So, I think she was maybe Apollo's first, like, oracle. Um, I don't quote me on that, but I think that might be what happened. Um, Sounds right. And then, but Cassandra continuing, I guess not continuing because she came before Trelawney, but the sentiment of being like a badass woman who don't need no man, she did not return (laughs) Apollo's love. So Apollo got really salty just like Higglebottom did. And (laughs) Apollo placed a curse on her so that nobody would believe her prophecy. So Even though she had the power of the prophecy and the ability to see the future that Apollo had granted her, still Apollo placed the curse on her that nobody would believe her prophecies. So I really like that comparison to Trelawney because as we know, she could slash can like make real predictions and provide real prophecies, but even then nobody believes her except for Dumbledore. So I guess there is like a little asterisk there, but she still kind of is cursed (laughs) with this nobody really believes in her, nobody believes in her abilities, nobody believes in the predictions that she makes. So that's really cool. So now going into the predictions, I'm first going to go through the two prophecies that are like genuine prophecy predictions. So the first one is the prophecy, the Voldemort prophecy. I'm going to read it really quickly. I'm not going to do a Trelawney voice though (laughs) because I read this earlier and I really really messed it up so I'm not even going to try and push my luck by doing a voice on top of it so the one with the power to vanquish the dark lord approaches born to those who have thrice defied him born as the seventh month dies and the dark lord will mark him as his equal but he will have power the dark lord knows not and either must die at the hand of the other, for neither can live while the other survives. The one with the power to vanquish the Dark Lord will be born as the seventh month dies. So, Voldemort heard some of this from Snape, who heard it when Trelawney was interviewing for the um, divination professor position. And so when Voldemort learns of this, he decides to he decides that Harry is what is who the prophecy is about. So he goes after the Potters, trying to kill this threat before the baby can grow up. And that's when he kills Harry's parents and Harry defeats him. I do want to add so obviously our listeners probably know about how this could have applied to Harry or Neville. Um and I do want to add, because I'm not sure this is canon, but I've always heard this. I don't know where it comes from, but 
the thought is that he chose Harry because Harry's a half-blood, right? Mm-hmm. And so he saw Harry, he saw, like, Harry as a greater threat, like, seeing more of himself and Harry than Neville being a pureblood. Yeah. Did I make that up? I definitely heard about that. I don't know if there's any evidence to prove that Voldemort, like, considered Neville as an option. Like, that might be more of, like, a not-story kind of thing. One of those, like... Mm-hmm greater unit i don't know what the like yeah. difference is but you know how there's like theories within this story that could work with the characters but then there's like greater theories right. like as a reader i feel like that's one of those as a reader um that i've right. heard because like i said i don't know if there's really any evidence that he even considered the long bottoms or like knew that neville had been born um well yeah so that we do they were we, pro- we i mean we know though. that they were um like had defeated voldemort thrice yeah, and the the order I think did put them under protection. Well, I thought that we knew that they were going after the Potters like basically from jump because Snape that's when Snape turned and was like he's going after the Potters like protect Lily. Mm, okay. I feel like they still protected the long bottoms but maybe that's always should been in my head. Mm. I mean, I don't I don't know. Um But so I have some questions about this, and this is, like, very theoretical questions, so I don't know if there's going to be answers. But, so, like, Dumbledore had mentioned that there are, like, multiple prophecies in the Hall of Prophecies that, like, don't ever really come true. Um, Like, not every prophecy that's made comes true because there's, like, a lot of moving factors. And I think that lends to the idea that maybe the wizarding world doesn't work on, like, a predestined kind of thing, you know what I mean? Because, like, mm. if if a prophecy was made, like, if there were things that happened in between that caused the prophecy to not come true, then, like, obviously it wasn't predestined to happen. It's like, has the choice factor in it. That's, like, a philosophical religious debate. But to me, that means that, like, there is not predestination in the wizarding world. So. But then, like, this kind of lends to predestination. Because if... Snape had not been there to hear the prophecy that night to relay it to Voldemort do we think the prophecy still would have come true or like was it made because Snape was there who would then tell Voldemort who then would like cause it to become true you know what I mean I think it's the second thing because I think prophecies are kind of like self-fulfilling yeah it's how I see it and so like even like I mean, even if you disregard the Snape thing and just think about, like, this is self-fulfilling because the Dark Lord will mark him as an equal. If if Voldemort never went out after Harry, Harry wouldn't be the one that could defeat him, you know? Yeah. So, I think, like, it's built into the words of the prophecy and also the circumstances, and I think that's, like, intentional. I think if Snape wasn't listening, then she never would have made the prophecy. Okay. That... I, like, I don't know. That's a very, like I said, very, like, theoretical, kind of, like, high-minded question. But I was just thinking about that because, like I said, I'm pretty sure there is evidence in the series that Dumbledore says that, like, not all prophecies come come true, or at least they take, like, decades and, like, centuries to maybe come true, you know? Um, Yeah. So I don't know. Or maybe just, like, some prophecies tell mundane things. Like, one day Katie will go to the grocery store and buy apples. Like, yes, maybe I will do that. But does that mean that, like, I fulfilled the prophecy? So I don't know. Prophecies are, like, very confusing. Yeah. So that's the first one that she makes. And then in Harry's third year in Prisoner of Azkaban, she makes another true prophecy just to Harry. And so I did see some stuff on the internet that was, like, 
was this prophecy ever reported to the Department of Mysteries? Like, did they ever have a record of this prophecy happy happening? Because Harry was the only one who heard it. And mm. I think that, like, he probably told Dumbledore. I don't know if I remember that specifically happening in the book. He did. I think he told Dumbledore later that night. Yeah. Like, after everything happened. Yeah, I also, if that is true, I doubt that Harry, like, remembered it verbatim, so I doubt that it would be, like, an accurate record of the prophecy, but we don't know if this is actually one that's, like, in the Department of Mysteries in five, because we don't know if it's, like, an officially recorded prophecy. I know that we don't, there's no way for us to answer this, but how do you think, because you know how the prophecies in the Department of Mystery, like, at least in the movie, and I think in the book it has like Trelawney's voice Mm -hmm. do you think that there's like some sort of spell that like Dumbledore knew to do when Trelawney like looked Mm -hmm. like she was gonna make prophecy and it kind of like records that and he like was able to like encapsulate it and keep it for posterity or do you like do you think it's just some kind of magic when like an actual prophecy is given Maybe it just, like, shows up in the Hall of Prophecies, like... That's more what I would guess, but then that means that there would be a record of this prophecy. I think that there's some, like, I don't know if cosmic being is the right phrase, but there's some, like, all-knowing spell that happens that, like, whenever a prophecy is deemed to be, like, legitimate that is made, it just, like, shows up in the Hall of Prophecies. That'd Mm -hmm. be my guess, at least. So the second prophecy is about the return of Voldemort, and it goes as such. It will happen tonight. The Dark Lord lies alone and friendless, abandoned by his followers. His servant has been chained these 12 years. Tonight before midnight, the servant will break free and set out to rejoin 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 his master the dark lord will rise again with his servant's aid greater and more terrible than he ever was tonight before midnight the servant will set out to rejoin his master so originally this was thought to be about Sirius black like harry was like oh damn this is about Sirius black he's been asked for 12 years he's a loyal supporter of Voldemort. this shit's gonna go down at midnight or before midnight tonight when in fact it was about peter pettigrew the uh, 12 years meant he was a rat for 12 years not in Azkaban and he does return to Voldemort he does aid in his rebirth I feel like I've also read stuff online but I couldn't find anything about it when I was searching now so I don't know if I make this up but I've also seen people apply this to Barty Crouch Mm -hmm. because this like could have been around the time that he broke out of Azkaban um because I think we know it was like maybe during this summer because we obviously know he's out by the beginning of Goblet of Fire. So, yeah, I don't know. I think that prophecies are, like, on purpose kind of vague and could apply to many different situations. So, food for thought. Yeah, I've definitely heard the Barty Crouch Jr. thing. I wonder if this prophecy we can also read as self-fulfilling, if you think of it as Peter. Um, because maybe, like, Harry hearing it caused him to like move into action caused him to move into action which caused the whole confrontation with Sirius and Peter and caused Wormtail to like he was outed as not being Scabbers the Rat and like having to break free he's not really breaking free but like leaving yeah to go to his master like I I don't know like if Harry hadn't heard this prophecy maybe 
none of that would have happened. Yeah, it's definitely interesting to think about, to, like, call into question the validity of the prophecies. Yeah. But, yeah, so those are her two known, like, real prophecies. There could be more, but I think there might even be a quote from Dumbledore that's, like, to our knowledge, this is the only real prophecy that she's made. Like, prior to the second one she makes, the one that she makes to Dumbledore, I think that, like, there's... Because, obviously, the prophecies are recorded, and on that little name tag has, like, who it's by in the Hall mm-hmm. of Prophecies, which is where we get her middle name, because it is S-P-T. So that's, like, why we have her middle name, fun fact. Um so like it might even be like we might even have like hard evidence that that was the first and the only at the time like real prophecy that she had made because if they're all assigned Mm -hmm. in the hall of prophecies i assume there's some sort of like way to check how many people or how many certain people have made yeah so the next so this list comes from an article by wizarding world um seven times that Professor Trelawney actually got it right. So the next one is the dinner table prediction, which I'm going to put an asterisk by because it wasn't really a prediction. It's more of like a superstition. It was kind of akin to walking under a ladder, opening an umbrella inside. Like it wasn't a prediction that she made. She just like knows of this superstition. And it is when 13 people die and the first to rise will be the first to die. So this comes in prisoner yeah sorry i don't know why i hesitated i know that that was in prisoner of azkaban during christmas and like because there aren't very many people at hogwarts for christmas that year they all like sit at one table for the christmas feast as opposed to the house tables and there's 12 people at the table when trelawney comes down and she's like oh no i can't sit down like when 13 people die and the first rise is the first to die and mcgonnell's like sit your ass down <laughs> um so she reluctantly sits down but going back analyzing this scene if we count scabbers as a person at the table there were already 13 people at the table because he's in ron's pocket because this is the time when he's like carrying scabbers with him everywhere because he's like afraid that crookshanks is gonna get him so there are already 13 people at the table and the first one to get up is dumbledore and he's in fact the first one to die out of those people so make of that what you will like i said it wasn't really a prediction by her and then 14 people were sitting at the table then so i don't know it's definitely fun to think about and i do think i do think that this was on purpose by jk just because it was like very specific like why scabbers was in ron's pocket like it was i think it was like Mm. more intentional so i do think that that was a planned thing the next one is the binky the rabbit prediction so she says to lavender that the thing you dread will come to pass on friday the 16th of october fun fact the 16th of october in 1993 was not a friday um but anyways so then when the 16th of october comes around lavender finds out that her rabbit binky had died this is when Hermione so aptly points out that, well, actually, Binky died yesterday. Well, actually, Binky's young. Well, actually, were you dreading it? Um, so, like I said, make of that what you will. I don't really buy it that much. The next one is that one of her students would leave forever. I think she says around Halloween in the prediction. 
This is referring to Hermione leaving the class. At the time, I think people assumed it was a kid would die. Um, But no, that didn't happen. It was Hermione leaving. And then the last one is the lightning struck tower. So this is another one that, like, I don't know if, like, really could be considered a prediction. She was, like, shuffling. I don't think they're called tarot cards in the book, but something akin to tarot cards. Mm. When Harry is heading up to Dumbledore's office to go horcrux hunting on the night that uh, Dumbledore dies. And she keeps on pulling the lightning struck tower card, which means that calamity disaster are coming nearer all the time which obviously the battle of astronomy tower happens again like the lightning struck tower the dark mark above the tower dumbledore's death so Mm. i like that one i think that's one of her more legitimate ones but again i feel like that was more the cards than trelawney yeah so i don't know i it's really interesting going back this isn't the first time i've like read stuff about the theory or about her predictions always being true i did read something that she kind of operates on this uh throw everything at the wall and see what sticks kind of thing um she makes a lot of very vague predictions and then so people are able to like interpret it and kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy make it true another thing that people point to is her predicting that neville would drop the teacups um so she tells him to like grab the blue ones because i'm partial to the pink ones i think or the either way or the other way around and this people have posited was just her picking up on like neville's general nervousness and clumsiness and she's probably heard stories about him around the hogwarts so i don't really buy that being a real prediction also like if you tell someone not to drop something (laughs) they're probably more likely to drop it yeah it's like when you're picking up something or just like handling something delicate or like being at an antique store you're just like so much more aware of everything and you're just so much more tense that (laughs) sometimes disaster happens yeah but i like that i think some of her prophecies i like better than others (laughs) But I'm all for uh, poking holes in them. Yeah. So now I'm going to talk about kind of her time as a professor, how good she is of a teacher, um, just that kind of stuff. So she secured the job at Hogwarts because she made the prophecy about Voldemort and Harry slash Neville at the end of her interview with Dumbledore at the Hogshead. And before this point, Dumbledore was considering getting rid of divination as a subject and I believe he only interviewed her because of her ancestry. And then he only gave her the position to keep her close. So really he just kind of wanted to get rid of divination altogether. And would have if not for these circumstances. Um, also from the ebook, I'll read a quote kind of just about her life at Hogwarts. It says, Conscious of her low status on the staff, who are almost all more talented than she is, Sybil spends most of her time apart from her colleagues up in her stuffy and overcrowded tower office. Unsurprisingly, perhaps, she has developed an over-reliance on alcohol. So we know this. Um, She's a bit of a drunk. She (laughs) spends a lot of her time alone. I think the, the part of this quote that really stuck out is like, the rest of the staff is almost all more talented than she is. Yeah. Um, which makes sense. Obviously, like, 
we just kind of poked holes in all of her prophecies and we've never seen her use a wand. Um, and then we have like other people on the staff, like, um, McGonagall and Flitwick and Snape, like these really, really talented witches and wizards. So, I mean, it is kind of a sad life for her. Yeah. Cause it's sad. Cause I feel like in the book, you don't really understand that she understands how different she is. Yeah. We just kind of assume that she's like this recluse that likes to be hidden in her chambers. But hearing that makes it really sad. It's like she knew that she didn't fit in, so she didn't even try. Right. Yeah. So basically what we also learned from that is she's not super talented besides maybe this gift that she has that's diluted over generations. Um, also, I think I was thinking about, like, her quality as a teacher, and I think that just, like, divination is kind of an impossible subject to teach or to learn. Mm. Um, obviously you can learn stuff like tea readings and planetary readings and, like, drawing cards, but it's also, I think, implied that, like, there's, like, the cards, it's implied, like, that the person who draws the cards has to be a seer, you yeah. know? Um... So you can learn all those things. You can learn what the different shapes of the tea leaves mean. But you can't learn sight. Like, that's why it's so, like, elusive. Yeah, sorry. I just remembered something. Along with the cards, another card she picks is, like, that a dark, mysterious stranger is, like, behind you or something. And <laughs> Harry's, like, hiding behind the statue. And it's obviously about him. And she's like, that make, that doesn't make any sense. That can't be right. Um but yeah, I just That's remembered funny. that when you said brought up the thing about cards again. Yeah. So, yeah, the only credibility that she has is this inconsistent sight. And the whole thing to me seems pretty pointless of teaching divination. And maybe this is, like, the approach Dumbledore is coming from. Like, maybe there is some value in prophecies. But, like, I'll even give you that. Sure. There's value in prophecies. Whatever. But... Like, why would it be a class for, like, all students? Like, I feel like it should be, like, if you are a student or a person that has the site or has, like, the capability of that, then you should just get, like, tutored by someone who's, like, done it before. Yeah. I mean, it is an elective, so kids don't have to take it. You choose if you want to take divination or not. So I think that was like part of his justification for bringing it back and like having Trelawney there is that like yeah. people don't have to take it. Yeah. <laughs> um, in class Trelawney basically she has them read tea leaves and kind of make random predictions about what they see in the planets and I think they also just spend some time just like reading in class um basically everyone knows that she'll give you a good grade and like be impressed with you if you just predict something crazy or someone dying um so she just kind of has a flair for the dramatic that again there's no credibility to this Hermione sees right through this um if you don't see anything happening it might just be because there's nothing to predict but in Trelawney's mind it just means that like that's your fault you can't see it yeah um she definitely you know embellishes <laughs> and so I think this is like me getting at the fact that she's a bad teacher because even if we allow divination to be seen as like a subject then that can be taught um, and that is, like, worth teaching, 
she's not very good at teaching it because she doesn't care at all if the students make accurate predictions. Like, she just wants them to predict something wild. Yeah. Um, like, Harry and Ron making up their divination homework, and they're just, like, saying all these terrible things that are gonna happen. <laughs> yeah. Which, I they will... all come true. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's so funny. Um, we'll have to break that down in a different yeah, episode. Yeah, for sure. I will say that she does, like, in her, to her favor as a teacher, she does um, form close relationships, or close question mark, with a couple of students, um, Lavender Brown and Pavardi Patel. I guess this proves she's not entirely useless. <laughs> um, I'm not sure I would call it, like, mentorship, but it is important for students to feel a connection and to look up to their professors so like if this is something that made lavender and Pavardi work harder in her class and make, pay more attention like even if it's useless information for them to have i guess that's still a good thing like she does she is successful with like inspiring some of her students and getting them to work harder and like be interested in the material it's just that she's successful with so few yeah and i really don't think like, she, I don't think she even really sees herself, like, as a teacher. Like, I think she's just, like, there to be dramatic. <laughs> hmm. I don't think she actively tries to teach. Yeah. That's what I'm trying to say. Um, so next, speaking of teaching and bad teachers and good teachers, I'm going to talk about <laughs> her relationship with McGonagall. So I'm going to start out with a quote from the ebook because I think it sums it up really well. Professors Trelawney and McGonagall are polar opposites. The one, the one something of a, sorry, the one something of a charlatan, manipulative, and grandiose. The other, fiercely intelligent, stern, and upright. So I've seen a lot of stuff comparing this relationship to the Hermione-Luna relationship, which I really like a lot. I think that, um, they're both, they, the parallels are so good. Just, ba like, house- McGonagall is a Gryffindor that was a hat stall between Gryffindor and Ravenclaw. Hermione yeah. was very close between Gryffindor and Ravenclaw. Both Trelawney and Luna are Ravenclaws. They're both the same type of Ravenclaws. Both of them kind of believe in this, in like certain parts in the Wizarding World, in certain, wow, that didn't make any sense. Both of them believe in things that other parts of the Wizarding World do not believe in. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so they dismiss them when we could maybe see that both of them like have valid reasons and like have like a reason to believe in the things that they believe in but the rest of the wizarding world just dismisses them I think it's also funny to bring up that like there are things in the wizarding world that people see as impossible like <laughs> um I'm sorry there's like magic in your world anything is possible you know but seeing that there are still like aspects and things that people don't believe in that are still too outlandish for wizards to believe in um, <laughs> these two people firmly believe in them um their kind of personas are both very like mystical not logical at all which again is the polar opposite of the logisticians I know that's not probably their personality type but like that type of brain in Hermione yeah. and McGonagall so I thought that was really cool it's something I've never thought of before both Hermione and McGonagall on many times like just dismiss Luna and Trelawney and are kind of mean to them um so there's that <laughs> 
McGonagall had just no respect for Trelawney at all. Not only did she have, like, no respect for divination, she just really did not respect Trelawney because she knew slash thought that she was basically a fraud and had no real talent. Um, she even calls divination an imprecise branch of, branch of magic, and I feel like she also calls it, like, a soft subject at another point in time. Um, and throughout the book, McGonagall makes some, like, really snide comments about Trelawney that are, like, really rude. Um, I did not find any quotes of them, but just, like, throughout, she's just, like, so dismissive and is, like, shut up. She basically, a lot of the times, she says something along the lines of, like, just shut up, triple, wow. Just shut up, Trill. Sybil, and sit down. That kind of sentiment. Yeah. Um, I just want to interject that we haven't talked about Hermione's personality type, obviously, because we haven't had an episode on her. But um, she is almost the same personality type as Luna and Trelawney, but with one letter different. And I think that's a really important letter because Sybil, uh, Trelawney, and Luna are INFP, and... Mm and Hermione is INTP so that's feeling versus thinking and I think a lot of these like a lot of the letters are not really what they sound like but feeling thinking is very clear um the difference between the two and her and McGonagall's personality type is very different but she does have a thinking personality type yeah so I just I really liked that um, comparison because like I said I've never yeah. thought of it before but it works very well it does um and I also brought up the fact that kind of tr- she didn't fit in with the other teachers like Audrey mentioned before that caused her to lock herself in her room that led to her dependence on alcohol so she just like overall did not have a very good relationship with any of the teachers but just because Trelawney and McGonagall were such polar opposites um they like specifically did not get along very well and McGonagall was not very tactful in hiding her distaste for Trelawney (laughs) um which I think is maybe I think that's not so great about McGonagall because I was like going back and reading some of these quotes and like they were really not nice very mean and she like specifically even like campaigns to have her students not take divination um which is also kind of like backstabby and like sneaky um Mm. so yeah it's definitely not one of McGonagall's brighter points but one of her brighter points is when she comes to Trelawney's defense Mm -hmm. so it wasn't until they had their shared hatred of Umbridge that they were brought together so McGonagall comforts Trelawney and helps her when Trelawney is being kicked out of Hogwarts um causing her to say one of my favorite quotes of all time Hogwarts is my home um (laughs) yeah so I kind of just had a question this might seem like I don't know not great towards McGonagall but McGonagall's not great towards Trelawney so we're gonna talk about it do we think like how much of this was McGonagall actually being a nice person and caring for Trelawney and how much of it was just like wanting to be defiant and like towards umbridge and just kind of be oppositional to her at every point first off i think mcgonagall would have done this for any professor that was thrown out um so it's not really trelawney specific but 
I, I do think that she wanted to defy Umbridge at any point, and and maybe this act of hers is more of a show of loyalty to Dumbledore than it is like caring and sympathy towards Trelawney. I do think that there is some redeeming, redeeming quality to her relationship with Trelawney in this moment because she is, while she is acting out of defiance to Umbridge, I think predominantly, she I think she does in that moment really see Trelawney as kind of helpless and I think she sympathizes um I don't think she can empathize with that position but I do think that she is a sympathetic enough person and a good and kind enough person when it comes down to it that she can see how terrible it is to throw Trelawney out on her ass and I think that comes down to the dichotomy between her and Umbridge where they're both um, very strict, but McGonagall does have this softer, kinder heart, and Umbridge obviously doesn't have a heart. Yeah. So when I was looking up stuff about, like, McGonagall and, um, Trelawney's relationship, this was, like, the number one thing that I found, and it's listed on, like, the top ten, like, McGonagall moments, like, the seven moments McGonagall was the best, and I don't know if I really think she should be lauded that much for it because I do think Mm. that a lot of it was just to be kind of like oppositionary is that a word oppositional towards umbrage I do think that it shows like her kindness and that she would do it even for Trelawney kind of thing um like I don't think she did it for Trelawney I think it was more of a she will do it even for Trelawney Mm -hmm. um so, I don't know. I just thought that was something interesting to talk about just because it is, like, such an iconic moment in kind of, like, the series and for McGonagall as a character. But I do yeah. think that it's important to remember that, like, McGonagall is really mean to Trelawney throughout the rest of their relationship. Yeah. No, I think definitely <laughs> point that out. <laughs> it's definitely a flaw of hers, and I think similarly to how you brought it up, like, it's definitely a flaw of Hermione is how she treats Luna for the majority of the time that they know each other. Yeah, and I do think it's important, or, or like a cool comparison as well, to be like Umbridge brought McGonagall and Trelawney together, but like Umbridge kind of brought Hermione and Luna together too with like yeah, needing to create yeah. the DA. That's like really when they formed their relationship. And then looking past even just Umbridge, it was like Voldemort that brought them together. So it was always this like antagonist that forced these two characters to see eye to eye and work together kind of thing yeah i think that's cool okay so now this next section is not so much about trelawney but it's a bit about kind of like seeing um so in the ebook there's a section on naming seers and i figured we'd just talk about it now because i don't know when else we would talk about it (laughs) so Within the Wizarding World, we see a wide variety of names. Um, there are muggle-like names, like Harry, James, Ronald, you know, kind of just your standard names. And there are also more eclectic names, um, like Xenophilius, Remus, and Electo, um, countless others. And we also see naming traditions. So the Black family, for example, uses star and constellation names for all of their children. And then there are other families that follow the ancient wizarding practice of consulting a naming seer. So a naming seer for a whole bunch of gold will predict the child's future and suggest a name. They'll predict 
so much as even like the personality um, and what that child will be like and suggest a name that they think will fit that child's personality. It's becoming more and more rare as a practice um, because it's expensive and also parents are starting to just be more inclined to quote, let their child find their own way. Um, and there's a quote about how parents are always fretting after hearing the seer's predictions about how their child's personality or future will turn out. So I think it just kind of came down as a practice because it really causes a lot more trouble than good. Um, when it comes down to it, it's not that important that your name fits your personality. Um, probably better that your parents don't worry about your future and how you're going to turn out. Yeah, it might even, like, lend itself to that self-fulfilling prophecy that we hear. Exactly. Like, if they hear that their child is going to be, like, really rebellious, they might, like, crack down and be more, like, protective over them, which would just cause mm-hmm. them in turn to become rebellious. So, it's interesting. So, I wanted to pause it, kind of, who in the, the Wizarding World or in the series that we know might have... Uh, been like named through a naming seer like whose parents might have used a naming seer well this so my oh sorry oh go ahead. I was gonna say I feel like that's a really interesting question because I feel like there's two kind of ways you could go about it and this might be I haven't really read your notes so it could be like the more eccentric more inclined to believe in seeing like that could be one category but also it feels like kind of more of this like ancient um like older wizarding practice that might be adopted by some like more prestigious older families so that's interesting to think about yeah and I mean you pegged it I have three examples and they kind of span that that her um spectrum so the first is I thought I was trying to think of of characters that really just fit their name Mm -hmm. um and Luna came up to me I feel like like you said with the first thing like kind of eclectic quirky wizarding families I totally feel like um Xenophilius and Pandora would be like very invested like and totally buy and believe in seeing and naming seers um the one thing is I'm not sure like that they would spend the money on Mm. it they don't seem to have a ton of money and it kind of feels like they that might be one thing that they're like more practical on it's like not (laughs) spending money to have someone else tell them that like they could something that they could figure out on their own yeah But Luna is just such a perfect name for her personality that it makes me wonder a little bit. (laughs) The next one, which hits on the second way you interpreted this, is Sirius. So, yes, obviously, like, the Black family falls in that tradition of naming their kids after stars or constellations. So, like, there's kind of a narrower... um, a narrower lens or narrower options for the naming seer to go with, but... Specifically, Sirius um, being the dog star, it's supposed to be the brightest star too. You think about like brightness again in like a dark family. It works perfectly for his personality. His animagus is a dog. Um, I think it's a really good name for him. So I wondered if maybe this was actually like a naming seer that had a little bit of credibility. Mm. Um, the Blacks would certainly, I think, fall in the category of people who have money to throw around and might throw it around at this kind of ancient practice. Yeah. And also, I think that we maybe could kind of get to his childhood this way because maybe the seer told the Blacks that he was going to be rebellious, like you said, kind of 
probably not said like, oh, he's going to be in Gryffindor, but kind of told them Gryffindor traits and that he would be unlike the rest of the family. And maybe that's why they treated him poorly from Drump. And then it's self-fulfilling and he actually becomes that way. I like that. Exactly how you said it. Because I think I have thought a lot about in the past, like what, what drove Sirius to be so different Mm. before even getting sorted into Gryffindor. Yeah. Because we know that he has this disdain from of Slytherin from Jump, and this is totally getting off topic, but I think that is, like, maybe that's kind of how, uh, how it played out. I like that a lot. Good job, Audrey. (laughs) And then the last one is Remus, and this is just because they literally named their son Remus, and his last name is Lupin, and, like, are you really telling me they didn't (laughs) know he was gonna be a werewolf? Yeah, also, I don't know if this is, like, a thing, but did so we know his father had disdain for werewolves was this a thing like when when ramus was born like did did he already have a disdain for werewolves and like wolves and just like name his child (laughs) yeah this would be yeah like romulus and ramus raised by wolves yeah (laughs) lupin like moon um so yeah that would be like really funny yes all right then my last little fun part of this section is that not a naming seer but i did consult a harry potter name generator for us just because it came up and i've i've seen this before and done this before um and i didn't put the names it gave us in the notes because i wanted to surprise katie (laughs) oh god i'm nervous so you just put in your name and then you choose a gender unfortunately there's only female or male because this is the jkr world that we live in it's a bloomsbury tool it's really old but you put in your name and it gives you a wizarding name with like the same initials so yeah. i put in my name and i got ariana maxime oh i love the name ariana <laughs> right you said that like on our last yeah. episode it's a little bit like dumbledore family name yeah. madame maxime pretty cool i was happy with it your name I had to do it a couple times because it did give me Katie twice. <laughs> I mean, it is a name in the wizarding world. <laughs> it's a K name in the wizarding world. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, you would think they have been built into this program, like, don't give the same name you put in. True. But then, so your first name, Kendra. Okay. So another Dumbledore family name. Very true. Your last name. <laughs> Diggory! <laughs> yes! I love that. I love that. I do... I don't know how much I like Kendra. I feel like it just gave me, like, another classic white girl name. Um, <laughs> but that's fine. I feel like there aren't very many K names in the wizarding world anyways besides Katie and Kendra, which are both just classic white girl names. Well, Can, it did give Katie first, so... Okay. But it didn't give Katie Diggory, but... Well, I guess... You could take Katie... Keep, Kate, keep Katie and... S- take degree well then i just married cedric and then that's fine as well um (laughs) i guess like because kingsley is uh, like the name of a male character in this Mm. series i'm trying to think of any other ones i kept on like thinking of crumb but that's a last name yeah yeah i mean i could get like cassandra could probably be spelled with a k oh yeah you could spell with k yeah yeah i can't think of any other ones so can i 
That's probably why it only gave me Katie. Yeah. Denver. I'm sure that there are names that we are forgetting that are just mentioned somewhere, but off the top of my head, those are the only ones I can think of. Yeah. I like that. That was really fun. <laughs> anyway, it's a little off topic. <laughs> <laughs> um, so for the where are they now section, we do know a little bit about Trelawney um, because of one extra work of fiction associated with the series um so we, i thought you were coming around to it no <laughs> i said i had mixed feelings about it so it's actually really funny so my sister just came home last night um and she had just listened to the bellatrix episode where we like extensively talk about this work of fiction cursed child and this is that's the episode where i talk about like the mixed feelings and how like people are reclaiming it because it's not a work of fiction that was written by jk rowling and my sister was like but you could also just reclaim other fan fiction that is so much better than cursed child um (laughs) So. And that also didn't get approved by J.K. Yeah, that, yeah. so you can't, I mean, you can do whatever you want with the works of fiction. You can distance it from J.K. Rowling, but, like, we, it is still approved by her, and she has her name on it. Um, so we do know that she continued teaching at Hogwarts until the 2010s. Um, the source for this was, like, a Pottermore article, and when I click on it, since Pottermore is no longer a thing, I don't get that article, so I don't. Hmm. I don't know what this source actually was. It just took me. It took me to a Pottermore like buy an audiobook, um, like the ebooks uh, and audiobook section. So I don't know. Huh. But it wasn't in this ebook. So yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, let me see if I can. I have. It has the name of it. Let me go back and find it. Like the name of the article. So if I look at the source, it says, Happy Birthday, Professor Trelawney, March 9th, 2014. I wonder if there was like a like a thing published for her birthday on March 19th that was like, today she is teaching at Hot... You know what I mean? Um, hmm. So I don't know. Um, and then it also said that Frenzy went back to be... Um, that Frenzy went back to the herd after half-blood prince so he was no longer teaching divination so she went she could have like went back to being the only divination teacher because we do know in half-blood prince both of them were teaching divination she also wrote a book called my eyes and how to see the past them oh wow i did not say that (laughs) my eyes and how to see past them um this is one of the books that we see on Hermione's bookshelf in her office as Minister of Magic. That's fascinating that Hermione would have her book. Yeah, I feel like she bought it just to like tear it apart. You know, just to like shit talk it. Yeah. So she could like, just, like so she could make better arguments against it. So she could like sit like you know, just like curl up with a glass of wine in the book and just like get all her anger yeah, out. And Mom's like, like, what's going on? Ron's like you literally quit the class like <laughs> get over it 20 years ago <laughs> yeah so yeah um that's the only information we have about her post battle of hogwarts um like we've mentioned before we do know that she participated in the battle of hogwarts though and was there so in the calling all witches book she is of course included um and she's described as intuitive curious and gifted which I like the curious, curious, gifted. I feel like we kind of call bullshit. 
Um, and there is the a quote from Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban that she says, um, the truth lies buried like a sentence deep within a book waiting to be read, but first you must broaden your minds. And I think she says that, yeah, she says that in the first divination class, I think. Um, at least in the movie, I don't know about in the book, but I feel like it really captures her uh, persona. And then it cites the two times that her predictions came true. And I think the best thing about this is, like, this illustration of her mm. is incredible. Yeah, I really like that. Um, maybe we can use it for for the Instagram post for this episode. Yeah, there, I will say, in the Prisoner of Azkaban illustrated book, there's also a really great interpretation. Because I really like to go back, I think I mentioned this before, and look at the illustrated version um, characters because it is not based on the movies. So it's a little mm. bit of a different interpretation, but, like, a really cool photo. And so then Archie Thomas's cocktail um, for Professor Sybil Trelawney. Does it have cherry in it? It better have cherry in it. It doesn't have cherry in it. A missed opportunity. <laughs> I wish it was just a straight glass of sherry. <gasps> what even is sherry? Is it like a hard alcohol or is it? Because you always say like wine. cooking sherry, right? It's a wine, oh, okay. I think. Like sherry wine. Mm. It seems like um, an old person drink. Yeah, I also think that it might be kind of like a British thing. Mm. Um, I'm Googling. Oh. <laughs> yeah, it's a, wi- a white wine. Oh, okay. It's from Spain, but I feel like it's never really... I feel like it's only ever talked about in, like, British, like, books mm. and stuff. I don't know. Maybe I'm making that up. But, so, I... I will maybe excuse Archie Thomas because I don't know that he read the books <laughs> and I don't know that they specifically mentioned Sherry in the movies. Yeah, they definitely so. don't think. <laughs> so the name of this cocktail is the Crystal Ball or Crystal Ball. It says, stare deeply into this drink and it is said that those with the gift can tell the future. No doubt it involves some awful and tragic event when read by certain people. Little shade there, little shade. So it is made of two and a half parts vodka, one part coffee liqueur, one and a half parts single cream, and a cocktail cherry and ice. So it's kind of like milky looking, like a crystal ball. Hmm. I don't think I would enjoy that. (laughs) No, I don't think so. I don't want cream in my drinks. Depends on what else is in them. Hi, my name is Larry and I'm a Slytherin. My name is Justin, and I'm a Slytherin. And together we host the Here's Johnny podcast, where we take a look at horror movies, TV shows... Oh, and games. We also have had amazing guests on the show that are directors, producers... And don't forget writers, Twitch streamers, and other podcasters. Yeah, and you can also check out our show every Monday. Just search Here's Johnny Podcast on your podcast app of choice. And you can always follow us on Twitter at Here's Johnny Cast. We are sure you will find an episode you will love. Maybe just like Ollivander's wands, an episode will pick you. Okay, so for today's pop quiz question, we have what is your least favorite subject subject at Hogwarts? Or like what would have been your least favorite if you had attended Hogwarts? We had this because divination is probably one of Harry's least favorite. I don't know if I could say least favorite definitively because I feel like potions might be up there for at least the first five years of his education yeah. and history of magic, but it's definitely one of his least favorite. 
Yeah, I feel like it might be his least favorite subject, but potions is his least favorite class because of the professor. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. On our Facebook group, we got a whole bunch of responses, so I'll go through them. Um, Lisa said, history of magic, mostly because Professor Binns teaches it in a boring manner, might be cool with a different teacher, and probably arithmancy, because it reminds me somehow of statistics, which was not my favorite subject in college. <laughs> Taryn said, history of magic, but only because of Professor Binns. I love history and would be looking forward to that class, only to be disappointed with a professor who doesn't make the class interesting. It's such a bummer because it could be really interesting. I agree. Cassidy said arithmancy and didn't understand maths as a muggle, won't understand maths as a wizard. <laughs> Anne said divination, but I could just make shit up like Harry and Ron. <laughs> Relatable. J- Justine said history of magic because it's only lectures. Mm-hmm. And then Rebecca said muggle studies, all the other classes, all others are magic classes. And even if they had bad professors, Bins and Snape, they're still magic classes. Plus, I think I would actually enjoy history of magic because I love history and potions. I'm a muggle. That's why I take wizard studies. <laughs> so we also posted this question on our Instagram story when we first started recording and we got a couple responses since then. So... First, from Of Muggles and Mudbloods, which is another Harry Potter podcast, if you want to check it out. They said divination, but I'd love history of magic. Um, I agree. I think I've said on this podcast before that history of magic would have been my favorite class if it had a better teacher. Book underscore fangirl17 said history of magic. I think it could be really interesting, but Ben's makes it dreadful. Seems like a common theme. <laughs> then SLVDRVR2. Sorry, I don't Maybe it's know. It's like how, Salvador. That's like. Without the. But then there's another V. It's like DVR. Salv- oh, I don't know. Yeah. So I don't know how to pronounce your Instagram handle. I apologize. Um, I do not like the implication that I would not enjoy my education, but probably care of magical creatures, which is an interesting one that we haven't gotten. So what would yeah, what would your answer be? Well, I feel like there was kind of a clear consensus from the the listeners that it was history of magic, which I get that because of Professor Binns, but I think I have two answers. So one, I would have to agree with Rebecca on Muggle studies. I think if I were Muggleborn. I would maybe enjoy the class because I think it'd probably be really funny to see how the wizarding world views muggles. But if I were, um, like, raised by a magical family, half-blood or pure-blood, I feel like I would not see the reason of taking it and just... Because you probably have heard the same beliefs about muggles that, like, are taught. Yeah. And then the other one, I guess, just to throw another one into the mix, I feel like ancient runes i don't know how i would feel about that i did take latin in high school and i loved it but that was only because of the teacher so if there was a good professor we don't really know anything about the ancient runes professor like if they're any good if there was a good professor i might like it but i feel like i wouldn't be very interested in the the subject that much well we do know just because it feels 
I'm sorry. It feels not really relevant to, like, the rest of the magical world. Yeah. I mean, I think we do know that that's Hermione's, like, favorite class. So the professor yeah, has that's to true. be somewhat decent, I feel like. I mean, like, I feel like Hermione's bar is, like, not an idiot. <laughs> but she would be interested in any professor. Yeah. And, like, I feel like it could be boring. Yeah, that's true. Um, I have a... I don't know. So, just to be, like, a little bit sassy, I'm going to clap back at all the people that chose History of Magic because of a terrible professor, and I'm going to go with potions because of a terrible professor. Yeah, um, Like, honestly, my least favorite classes, I mean, professors and teachers have a lot to do with how much you enjoy the class, but to have, like, an outright, like, mean professor that is like legitimately unfair would like really hurt I feel like my Hufflepuff soul like just the amount of like unfairness in his classes I don't appreciate um it just like boils my blood then I feel like I could also say astronomy like I feel like I'm not the type of person to enjoy that like in real life I have no interest outer space kind of freaks me out I like to ignore it as much as possible and I feel like it'd be just kind of boring for me. I know a lot of people are, like, super into that stuff, but I'm not one of those people. I think it, astronomy sounds like kind of a grueling class because you have to, like, make the maps yeah, and stuff. you have to, like, stuff. memorize think, so many things. I'm... Yeah. I don't know. It's also, I mean, in the wizarding world, I don't think it is, but also, like, it's very um, physics-based. Mm. There was an astronomy class offered at my college Gross. this past year, and I knew people that took it because they were like, ah, "Like it's, it's such going to be such a joke class." And then it was really hard because it was very like it was in the physics department, yeah. and like you have to calculate the angles of all these things. So I feel like I would, I I like math. I don't really like physics though, but like I feel like I would think astronomy was really cool at first in the Wizarding World, just because like. I think space is cool, but I would get bored of it because it sounds like it gets tedious. I would not enjoy having to climb up however many fucking stairs you have to to get up to the top of the astronomy tower at midnight. (laughs) That reminds me of us climbing the stairs at DAS. Oh my god. (laughs) That killed me. Like, honestly killed me some days. Yeah. So you can find our podcast anywhere you get your podcasts. Definitely the one that you're, the platform that you're listening to us on now. We are on. Uh, And we have episodes released every Tuesday throughout August and then every other Tuesday following that. Yeah, you can find us on social media. We are on Facebook and Instagram as Wizard Studies Podcast. You can join our Facebook group. Uh, It's called Wizard Studies Podcast Group. If you want to answer our pop quiz questions and have your answers be read on the podcast, you can also follow us on Twitter at Wizard Studies, and you can email us at wizardstudiespodcast at gmail.com. Great. As always, thank you so much for listening, and remember, just do your best, we'll do the rest and learn until our brains all rot.